Well, it is my assignment to address the Day of Atonement, which is the great drama of redemption that the Lord has given to us. And I trust that as we meditate upon, ultimately, Leviticus 16, that our eyes might be open and our hearts receptive to the wonderful truth of the gospel that is given to us in that amazing drama. But as we begin, I want to read the inspired synopsis of the Day of Atonement that we'll find in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, the first 12 verses. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once in the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And throughout the Old Testament, events occurred that were significant, not only for the facts that we read that established the Old Covenant nation, but spiritual truths that were symbolized. Indeed, many of the events that took place from the Exodus right on through the conquest were filled with applications of spiritual truths and gospel lessons. For instance, the Passover, with its demonstration of sovereign grace, divine power, substitutionary sacrifice, is overflowing with gospel lessons and messianic picture prophecies. In addition to that focus on the various aspects of truth, we need to pay attention also to the various feast days and fast days that God had ordained for his people. These holidays were more than simply opportunities to get off work for the day. They were lessons, inspired lessons, that God was giving to teach them certain spiritual truths. I admit that as a teacher, I sometimes take things for granted, assuming that students no more than they do. I don't know why I make that assumption. But I do want to digress here then just for a few moments before I come to the text to explain the methodology, something of the hermeneutic that I will be using to make the spiritual truths that we want to focus our attention upon. I remember so often as a youngster hearing sermons and asking myself, how does he see that? I don't see that. Well, I want to make sure that you can see why I'm seeing what I will be seeing in the text this evening. 
God indeed was the most effective teacher. As a revealer of truth, his desire was that man would understand what he revealed. And he certainly holds us each one accountable for the truth that he has revealed to us. And as evidence of that desire and that purpose from the beginning of his revelation, he has communicated in comprehensible ways to the people to whom he is indeed speaking. And that revelation was very often progressive. Progressive revelation is never going from wrong to right. Progressive revelation is not that which goes from even incomplete to complete. Progressive revelation always is that which is general that goes to the specific. As God reveals more and more, we learn more and more of the truths that he wants us to understand. And in that progressiveness of revelation, not only is the content involved, but also the way in which God communicates. Truth never changes. Truth is timeless. Truth is universal. Truth, I say, is absolutely unchangeable. Now, the more God gave the details then to advance that truth, both in terms of context, but I say he spoke in ways that the men could understand. An important lesson to learn is uh, that God indeed spoke in diverse manners in the Old Testament. He didn't just drop a bunch of theological terms. He didn't just say to Moses uh, on the mountain, propitiation, now go tell the people. He didn't just give them a bunch of theological terms, but he gave them ways that they could understand what it was that he was speaking. And I know the I know the folly of this firsthand. I remember when my older son was just three years old. I was working on my dissertation at that time and I was at my desk and uh, working hard and my son comes into the room and he gets under the desk and I say, what are you doing down there? What are you doing down there? And he said, I'm hiding. Okay, who are you hiding from? I'm hiding from God. Well, now I've got a problem more severe than working on this dissertation. So I, I bring the boy on my lap and I say, listen, Chad, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. You can't hide from God. God is everywhere. Don't you understand? And he left and... He went into his room and said, God's not underneath my bed. So notwithstanding the pristine orthodoxy with which I answered his question, he didn't have a clue as to what I was saying. That's why you send them to their mothers and let, yeah. <laughs> and, and Sander took care then of the, uh, of the issue. What I said was good. Now here's my point. What I said was good. But how I said it was not particularly effective. But thankfully, the Lord knows not only what to say, but how to say it. And one of the key ways that he revealed truth in the Old Testament by uh, using pictures, analogies, object lessons, illustrations, to declare and to clarify very profound truths of his revelation. He was graciously giving them something to see so that they might know what they ought to believe. And that particularly was the case in terms of what he revealed about the gospel and the coming of the Messiah. I will define the terms a bit more technically here, I suppose, in a moment. But let me put it very simply, first of all, in terms of X and Y. God is giving us an X, something to look at, and that X then, whatever it is, a person, a place, an event, that X is supposed to direct our attention to Y. We are to learn something about Y by looking at X. And I say so much of the Old Testament is God using X's to teach us something, some truth about Y. And it's important 
It's important that we learn to distinguish between X and Y. The principal thing to remember is this, that X is a picture of Y, but X doesn't equal Y. X is not Y. X is not the reality. The picture points to the reality, but it's not the reality. I think one of the interesting ways the New Testament describes this is by calling these shadows. The book of Hebrews refers to the shadows of the Old Testament. And those shadows, you know how a shadow works. Uh, the shadow is not the reality. I may be walking down the sidewalk and on a sunny day and I can, I, I, I can see a, a shadow. And depending upon what time of day it is, uh, I might like what I see. It's nice, it's, it's long, it's lean, and okay. I, I, but I recognize that it's me. There's something about that shadow that that's me. Other times it may be different time of day and the shadow is short and stumpy, uh, but still I, I can tell that it's, it's me. But the shadow is not me. I cast the shadow. The shadow directs us to the reality, and so it is. All of these Old Testament pictures... All of these Old Testament types, if you will, were divinely inspired object lessons that God gave X's. Look at the X. God is saying, look at the X to see something about the reality, the Y. So take the Ark of the Covenant, for instance. The Ark of the Covenant was a great picture of the presence of God with his people. But that was not the reality. God never lived in a box. God was not contained to that little object lesson, but it was given by God to represent his presence and to teach the people those spiritual truths. Don't confuse X with Y. You'll end up with some very tragic mistakes. Nevertheless, I, I, I can't begin to count the number of times uh, people have come to me and assume that in the Old Testament dispensation, people were saved by animal blood, but now in the New Testament were saved by Christ's blood. What are they doing? They're confusing the X of all those animal sacrifices, and they're assuming that those animal sacrifices were the reality. No, no. I'm then asked, well, how much? How much do those Old Testament people understand about these? I said, I can't answer that question. I don't know how much you understand. I know how much you should understand given the fact that you've said in my classes. I know how much you should understand, but I don't know how much you understand. I know how much the Israelites should have understood given the revelation that God had given to them. Revelation that was clear. All these object lessons were, were not designed to conceal truth, but to explain the truth and to bring them to a full understanding. So if we deny that God spoke in this way, I don't think we're ever rightly going to understand much of the message of the Old Testament, much of what the Old Testament reveals about the coming of Christ. Our picture prophecies Picture prophecies, look at this, God says, look at this. Look at this person, look at this place, look at this event. To look at the reality. There's something that casts the reality. What, is, what does John say about Jesus in Revelation? He's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's the reality, you see. And you can't understand. Leviticus is just the shadow. Leviticus is just the shadow of that lamb that was slain. In eternity. So we want to look at the X. Now we come back to the topic here a little bit. I, I, I want to look at the X before us in the text, Leviticus 19, or 16, to learn something about the Y that is being pictured. And one of the most important events in the Old Testament calendar was the Day of Atonement. We read the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, that explains something of uh, what that Day of Atonement was, and the writer of Hebrews says that this was signifying something. It was pointing to something. It was teaching some spiritual truths beyond just the picture of what was happening. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was an X, 
And as we look at that X of the Day of Atonement, we are to learn something of the Y of the Lord Jesus, who was the only true atonement for the sins of his people. Old Testament refers to the Day of Atonement on several occasions, but certainly Leviticus 16 that details the orders and the events of that day is the most specific. It paints a beautiful picture of the gospel and the work of Christ. The pageantry of that day, of that drama, was fraught with all kinds of symbolism. The high priest dressed in white, the stifled moan of dying animals, the sweet aroma of the smoke-blended incense, the fresh blood, the holy presence of God that brooded someplace in the inner part of the sanctuary. All of these uh, strange sights and smells and sounds and shadows must have made a deep impression, a sobering impact uh, on the ancient observers of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's interesting that Leviticus 23, particularly when it refers to this day, uses the plural as the Day of Atonements, the Day of Atonements. Singular idea, but that is comprised of constituent parts. And as we go through the details here, we're going to see that to be the very case. It's one day of atonement, but yet there are significant parts of that day, each of which in their own way, revealing to us something of the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. This day of atonement was unquestionably associated with the sin problem. And all the strange and the bizarre elements of the ritual contributed something vital to the Lord's expanding message of the grace of salvation. Now that remarkable chapter, you go back to Leviticus 16. That remarkable chapter begins with a flashback to a very sad but significant scene. The death of Nadab and Abihu. Those sons of Aaron that were consumed by the fire of God's glory because they tried to enter into the presence of God according to their own will, according to their own devising. And now their charred ashes stand as memorials to the narrowness of the only way to God's mercy. And now God is even restricting Aaron, the high priest, from entering behind that veil in a way other than according to God's own terms. So the very beginning of the chapter, we're faced with a dilemma. Men need the mercy of God. But men can die by trying to get that mercy. How, how is it possible for man to get the mercy that he needs? And indeed the Day of Atonement teaches that there is a restriction on accessing that mercy, sinners cannot come to God. Is this not a gospel truth for us? That sinners cannot come to God on their own terms. That God sets the terms. That God sets the way whereby sinners can come. Oh, there is a way, but that way is restricted. That way is restricted. And true religion is narrow. True religion is inflexibly intolerant of any other way than the way of Jesus Christ, the way to mercy, the way to the grace, the way to that grace of salvation that man desperately needs, is restricted. But there is a way. And the rituals of Leviticus 16 teach us something about that way. If you have read Leviticus 16, I'm sure you have. It's a bit complex if it's not convoluted. After identifying the animals that are to be sacrificed, after describing the attire of the high priest on that day, we then have an outline of what is to take place. And following that outline of what is to take place, then we have the details of what took place. So there seems to be some repetition, but all of these, I say, are vital truths, notwithstanding the complexities. There are profound truths for us to learn. 
And the Day of Atonement then is, I say, a drama. It's a drama of the only hope for sinners. It's a solemn day. Scripture says it's a time to afflict the soul. Day of fasting. A day of fasting to examine oneself. To reflect upon the tremendous cost of sin. A day of reflection to rejoice in the grace of the certain remedy for that sin. Now thankfully all of those dramatic rituals are finished. They've been wonderfully and thankfully outmoded. But the message endures because it is the message of the everlasting gospel. And so in this address, I want to highlight particularly three themes, three acts in this drama that illustrate essential gospel truths as they point to the coming Jesus. I want us to consider something of the need for a mediator, the need for a sacrifice, and finally assure salvation. The first truth is that sinners can approach God only through the mediation of a sinless priest. The holiness of God demands it. Leviticus has revealed God principally in terms of his holiness, his otherness, his separateness from everything that is outside of himself. Oh, certainly God is separate from sin. He's pure from sin. But the holiness of God is not just his purity and separation from sin. It's his transcendence. It's his separation from everything and anything else. We often say that God is wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely distinct from anything and everything else that is. And because... He is holy. He will not share his glory with any other. Because he is infinitely holy, access to his presence must only be by those that are holy. He says, you must be holy because I am holy. And the very tripart construction of the tabernacle. You think of the way the tabernacle was constructed. Uh, Three parts. You had the outer court, and in the outer court, the general population could uh, mingle. Then you had the holy place, and in the holy place, it was only the priests that could enter and do their service. But then you had the veil, that thick curtain, behind which was the most holy place, off-limits, off-limits to everybody, even priests, except the high priest, on one day, this day of atonement. On that day, the high priest could enter into that place behind the veil, but only with the blood of the sacrifice. So I say even the structure of the tabernacle itself says something to us of the holiness of God. Leviticus is clear that man cannot presume. Man cannot presume on God's mercy nor trifle with God's holiness. The magnitude of sin intensifies the need for a mediator. It necessitates otherwise the separation of the sinner from God. And significantly, Leviticus 16 follows several chapters that detail the laws of cleanness and uncleanness that highlight the sin of the people. Remember all those laws of cleanness and uncleanness? You get lost sometimes trying to figure out what some of those animals were. But the point is clear enough that there are so many things in this world. You can't walk in this world without being tainted, without being infected, without being contaminated uh, with the sin that is all around us. And that sin, that sin that is so pervasive in ourselves and in this world, is what precludes man from having an entrance, having any fellowship with the one true and living God. It was virtually impossible to live a day without being confronted, without being exposed to what would render them unfit to approach God. Sin defiles and precludes fellowship with the holy God. And everything the sinner touched became contaminated. And even in this text, the tabernacle itself Uh, has been infected. There has to be a cleansing of the tabernacle itself if there is to be any fellowship with God. 
It appears the opening scenes of Leviticus 16 appears to give a helpless prospect. There is sin everywhere. Man needs mercy, but man can't get to that place where God is. How can it happen? How can it happen? It appears to be hopeless. But there is a way. And the Day of Atonement explains the way of access to God. God in His grace has appointed a way whereby the most sinful and defiled could approach Him, but only through the ordained mediator. So I say a sinless mediator is necessary if there is to be access, if there is to be the enjoyment and the experience of the mercy of God. A mediator is necessary. And God ordained one. Here's the priest. The priesthood, remember, was one of the mediatorial offices. The priest was that one that represented men before God. And the high priest particularly was the apex of that order. And the daily attire of the high priest uh, illustrated that. You go back to Leviticus or, or Exodus 28 where you have the garments of the high priest for beauty and for glory that are described for us there. And, and, and you see the ephod with those onyx stones on the shoulders of the priest bearing the names of all the people, the tribes of Israel. And everywhere that Aaron went, he bore the names, he represented those. And then there was the breastplate with the 12 stones representing the names of the people of God, the tribes of Israel. Everywhere Aaron went, on his shoulders and over his heart, he carried the names of his people. He was representing the people everywhere he went. And that was a great message uh, to the people, everything that Aaron did in offering those sacrifices. He was doing it in behalf of those that he represented. And Aaron, who was the first high priest, did his best to show what was necessary and to illustrate what needed to be done if there was to be an approach to the Holy God. But it was clear that Aaron himself was not good enough. But he's the central character. All right, as we go through this narrative, Aaron becomes the central character uh, in, the whole, uh, in the whole picture. He's an ex. Can I go back to my X and Y? Aaron was the X, and God is saying, I want you to look at Aaron. Look at Aaron and learn something about the real mediator. Look at this imperfect mediator to learn something of that sinless mediator that is so essential. Look at Aaron to realize here comes, here comes Jesus. And as we look at Aaron then, there are some things that stand out, but two things particularly that I would highlight as I'm just giving an overview of what's happening in this chapter. The first thing is to realize that the mediator and his work of approaching God was a work of humiliation. It was a work of humiliation. And this is the most obvious thing in the dress of the high priest on this solemn occasion. I mentioned a moment ago the garment of the high priest uh, described for us in Exodus 28. Garments that were for beauty and garments that were for holiness and how rich they were, rich and sophisticated, intricate embroidery, uh, colors that were magnificent, each of them saying something about the wonder and the glory of the high priest. And every day of life, every day of life, Aaron would have that special garment on with the, with the turban that was declaring holiness unto the Lord every day of life as he makes his way through the congregation of Israel. He looked more like a king. He looked more like a king than a priest. Royal priesthood indeed he was. Every day of life except on this one day. On the day of atonement God instructed Aaron to take off. You take off those royal garments. You take off those robes of royalty and splendor. Take them off. And now in the simplicity, now in the simplicity and the humility of these linen garments, he was to do the work on the Day of Atonement. 
as a representative of sinful man. He was divested, stripped of every vestige of honor as he dealt with sin in the immediate presence of God. And on this day of atonement then, Aaron looked more, he looked more like a slave than he did a king. Among his fellows, Aaron's dignity was unsurpassed. But on this day, when he represented the sinful people in God's presence, he was stripped, I say, of all honor. He was about to enter into another world, and he had to dress for the occasion. But what Aaron graphically pictured, he's the ex. What Aaron graphically pictured, Christ explicitly fulfilled as he divested himself of visible and manifest glory, as he put on the frail, as he took upon himself the frailty of our humanity, a work of humiliation. We deal with the doctrine of Christ. We talk about his humiliation. We talk about his exaltation. What we see in the book of Leviticus here in this day of atonement takes us right to, to what the Apostle Paul says in that great kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He took upon himself our humanity. He took upon himself our frailty. And he became a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I submit to you when we see Aaron being stripped of all of his glory, how it's a picture of what the Lord Jesus was going to do in the incarnation as he takes upon himself our humanity. He humbles himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So I say, as we look at this mediator, it was first of all a work of humiliation. But second, it was a work that required purity. Since the holiness of God is absolute, only one who is sinless can enter into his presence. Aaron indeed was a great picture of what God, what Christ would do, but Aaron had his own problems. This was transparently evident in the fact that Aaron had to take care of his own sins before he could even symbolically deal with the sins of the people. The book of Hebrews made that emphasis, didn't it? Had to sacrifice for himself. Had his own sins to deal with. That teaches us a couple of things. Offering sacrifice for himself testified to the need for a sinless priest. Got to be a sinless priest that does this. Sacrifice then for your own sins. But it also created an, an anticipation for the one who would not have to do what Aaron was doing. What Aaron's doing doesn't work. You got to do this year after year. There's some, there was a built-in obsolescence. Remember I said the shadows tend to obscure. And God built in an obsolescence to many of these types and these symbols, these object lessons, so that they would not be mistaken for the reality. And so here's the need for a high priest, a sinless high priest, a pure high priest, but Aaron, he's got his own sins. He has to take care of his own sins before he can deal with the sins of another. So it begs the question, it begs the question, if not Aaron, then who? Then who? And the only answer to that question, the only answer is Jesus Christ, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for his people's. The only one in history since the fall of mankind that can approach the holy presence of God on his own merit is Christ. Only Christ is the perfect representative of his people. Only Christ has satisfied all of the requirements of the ideal high priest. And as Aaron was the imperfect type, the imperfect object lesson, he did his work alone. Nobody else could do it. But Christ, as the perfect antitype, the fulfillment of this prophecy, 
is the only one that can do the necessary work for atonement. Oh, there is a mediator. There is a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What a clear picture. What a clear picture. What a beautiful reality. Let's not get bogged down with all the details and get lost. No, get the big picture of what God is teaching here. Look at the X. Look at the X to see why. Look at Aaron to see Jesus. That is not reading the New Testament back into the Old. That is not some exegetical sleight of hand that rescues this for Christian usage. This was God's intent. God was giving pictures. Look at this. God was giving them something visible to look at to learn what they were to believe. All pointing. We heard in the first session that from the very beginning, from the very beginning, salvation was to be in the seed of the woman. The very first promise of the gospel was that the curse reverser is going to come into humanity. Keep that in mind just by the way. Do I have time to digress? I don't know. We started late. Uh, Keep that in mind. That's the very first lesson of the gospel. And so when you read Leviticus and hear all of these animal sacrifices, no, no, God has made it clear from the very first word of the gospel that salvation is not in animal blood. The curse reverse is going to be the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 becomes the interpretive, protective verse uh, for for Leviticus. Don't read Leviticus apart from Genesis 3.15. We know that the curse reverser is going to be one that comes into the human race. So all the animal sacrifices, oh, they're pictures. They're pictures. And Aaron, Aaron, as he did his part the best he could, was not good enough, begging the question, creating the anticipation as to when the one true mediator who is sinless, who is pure, is going to come. So that's the first lesson from the Day of Atonement, the need of a mediator. The second great truth is that sinners can approach God only on the grounds of vicarious sacrifice. Sinners can approach God only on the grounds of a vicarious sacrifice. And notwithstanding the sinlessness of the mediator, sin earned a debt that had to be paid. And all the rituals of the Day of Atonement stress the fact that all sin must be addressed if there is to be fellowship with God. Look at verse 21, if you have your Bibles there, and you can see the emphasis upon all iniquities, all transgressions, all sins, all that underscores the truth that sin separates from God and sin must be dealt with. And although the several sacrifices were offered on the Day of Atonement, there was one event in two parts that constituted the principal message of that day. There were two goats. One goat was for slaughter, And then the scapegoat. Which goat was for sacrifice and which goat was to be the scapegoat was determined by Lot. The one goat was to be the sin offering. The sin offering was one of those guilt offerings that pictured the satisfaction of God's wrath, divine wrath, the shedding of blood. And the removal of sin's guilt. As typically the carcass of that sacrifice was taken outside the camp and They're burned. The blood was not a display of some kind of brutal viciousness, but rather it was an evidence of God's incalculable grace. The blood shedding was necessary if there was to be the forgiveness of sins, if there was to be the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. We we refer to it as, as propitiation. There's that big word, propitiation satisfying God's wrath. And the blood that was shed by that slain goat pictures that aspect of the atonement, the blood shedding. What a beautiful picture. But the two goats together, I say the two goats together give us a full picture of what takes place, what happens in the atoning work of Christ. Propitiation, there's the Godward effect. 
There is the satisfaction of God's wrath against the sins of his people. But then we also talk about expiation. Expiation is the removal of the guilt. Expiation is the taking away of the sin. And the atoning work of Christ involves both propitiation and expiation. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's accomplished by the blood of Jesus. And now these two goats, I say, become a very vivid lesson, a very vivid picture of those two aspects of those big theological terms. And God gave a picture to illustrate the Godward effect, slain goat, chastisement of our peace was upon Christ, Isaiah says. The inflexibly holy God, inflexibly holy God, his wrath was quieted by the blood of Christ as the wrath of God was shed out upon the Lord Jesus himself. Expiation, I say, deals with the removal of sin and guilt, the forgiveness of sin. Christ came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews says. And I say expiation refers to the effect of the atonement upon both the sin and the sinner. Let's look at the picture here in a little more detail. The first goat. The first goat represents the necessity of death and bloodshed for propitiation. All the bloody sacrifices pictured that propitiation. But what made this one special is that the high priest was to take the blood of that slaughtered goat, take that blood and enter into that most restricted place in the tabernacle behind that thick curtain, behind that veil, into the most holy place. And as he entered into that place behind the veil, he was to take the blood of that slain goat and to sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Grasping the full significance of that, we have to understand what's going on with the ark. Without question, the ark was the climactic and central piece of all the tabernacle furniture. The ark represented, symbolized the presence of the Lord with his people. And although the ark was just an object lesson, the restrictions concerning the building of it, the content of it, the location of it, the transportation of it, We're all rigid and very inflexible. But in this box, in this box, God is saying, look at this box. Look at this box to learn some very important truths about the gospel. The fact that the box was overlaid with gold declares the sovereign majesty of God. To be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of a king. Consequently, it requires a humble submission to his authority. The box was overshadowed by the cherubim. Those cherubim, one of the classes of angelic beings, almost always in the scriptures, the cherubim are associated with either the presence of God or the holiness of God. First time we see them is after man fell and God stations them uh, at the entrance of paradise with their flaming swords to keep sinful man out of the presence now of paradise. We see them in Ezekiel's vision there in chapter 1, guardians, declarers of the holiness of God, and here pictured in the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowing the box was the cherubim as guardians, as declarers of the holiness of God, a reminder that men in their unholiness cannot approach unto this holy God. So the cherubim were part of the message. Inside the box was the manna testifying to God's provision and care for his people. Inside the box was the rod of Aaron that had budded back after the rebellion of Korah uh, as a demonstration of the chosen mediator that God has provided for his people. But also inside the box was the law of God. Inside the box were the tables of the law. That law that is inflexible. That law that gives the rigid standards of what righteousness is. God put that law that requires righteousness, that requires a total and a perfect obedience inside the box. And so long as that box is open, the law is calling forth for that complete obedience. 
The law is calling forth for that absolute, absolute righteousness to satisfy it. Complete obedience. The law is standing there condemning who can keep that law. Who can keep that law? And so long, so long as there was a lid, or so long, I should say, as there was uh, an open box, the open box called for man's condemnation. The open box called for man's death because of his transgressions of that law. There appears from the open box to be no hope. Uh, but here's the hope. There was a lid on that box. And that lid the mercy seat, the mercy seat, literally the atoning lid. There was a lid on that box. And as Aaron went into that most holy place, taking the blood of that slain goat, he sprinkled that blood on that mercy seat, that Ark of the Covenant that represented the very presence of God and the mercy of God now put upon that lid. And all was well. And all was well. The mercy seat, sprinkled with the blood, God was satisfied. Significantly, when the Apostle Paul said that God set forth Christ to be a propitiation for the sins of his people, the word propitiation that he uses there is the word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word that the Septuagint uses for the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. And so long as the lid, so long as the lid was on that box, coming between the holy God and the righteous law that called for condemnation was the mercy seat and with the blood. With the blood, there was the pronouncement of satisfaction. The law doesn't condemn. The law is silenced by the mercy seat. And so it is that those that are in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. What a picture. What a picture. And the placement of the blood and the mercy seat symbolized, I say, the stilling of God's law and the appeasement of God's righteous wrath. Christ entering into heaven with his own blood to accomplish that for real. Aaron did it in the object lesson tabernacle. But Christ did it for real. We said that in Hebrews, right? That Christ entered into heaven itself with the blood of his sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. There's an outstanding difference between Aaron's entering behind the veil and Christ. Aaron's goat blood secured his personal entrance into that presence. The people could not follow him. But Christ's blood secured entrance for all of his people. He was the forerunner, Hebrew says. He was a trailblazer into God's presence. We can say that Aaron pointed the way to God. But Christ paved the way into God's presence. That's the lesson from the first goat. The second goat illustrates expiation, the consequence of that propitiation. The scapegoat was a clear picture of the removal of sin and guilt, the saving benefit of the atonement. And after the slain goat was offered on the mercy seat, the attention now was on the scapegoat. The high priest would lean his hands upon uh, that scapegoat, confessing the sins of the people upon that goat. And then, symbolically, that goat was led away into the wilderness, carrying the sins uh, of the people symbolically. That goat was led off into the wilderness, literally a land cut off, a land not inhabited, never to be seen again. Sent to a place of no return. Interpreters have argued, as it were, over the meaning of that term scapegoat, literally a goat for Azazel. Some identified it as a reference to the tempter itself. So sin is being sent back to the tempter. I don't like that view, but some hold that. 
I don't care what it means etymologically. The point of the scapegoat is clear, regardless of how you interpret the word. That goat was sent out into the wilderness, and it never showed up again. It never showed up again. Reminds me of that little chorus I learned as a kid. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Yeah. The scapegoat. The scapegoat is a picture that the blood of Christ not only satisfies the wrath of God, but it cleanses from sin. There is the removal of sin, the removal of guilt. What a happy day. Whatever happened to that scapegoat may be in doubt, but one thing is beautifully clear. It never showed up again. There was never a day of atonement. There was never a day of atonement without a scapegoat. And what a message of the gospel that is. Propitiation guarantees expiation. Those for whom Christ died, are guaranteed the forgiveness of sins. There is an inseparable connection between propitiation and expiation. Those for whom Christ died will know and must know the forgiveness of sins. And so we declare that whenever, that whenever and wherever the blood of Christ is applied, there is salvation. I'm glad that as a preacher of the gospel that I don't have to preach a maybe gospel. You don't preach a maybe gospel. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. No, there's no maybe in the gospel. Those for whom Jesus died, those for whom he shed his blood, by the Spirit of God will be drawn to him. And there will be the forgiveness of sins. That brings me to the last point, assure salvation. This is the third great truth. That sinners can be sure of salvation because of the resurrection of Christ. Remember Paul's classic definition of the gospel. That the gospel consists of Christ dying according to the scriptures. And that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ is just as essential to the gospel as the death of Christ. Two parts, one gospel. And the Day of Atonement provides a picture, prophecy of both the death and the resurrection. If Aaron's wearing the simple linen and entering behind the veil to present the blood pictures the humiliation and death of Christ. His exiting, his exiting from behind the veil and exchanging now those simple linen garments once again for those garments of royalty, those garments for beauty and for glory, he puts those back on. Beginning now of the exaltation. Go back to Philippians 2. There's the humiliation of Christ. Becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name. The resurrection being the first step of that exaltation. And the day of atonement pictures that for us. If Aaron, I say, enters behind that veil becomes a picture of the death of Christ, his exiting from that veil becomes a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And he puts on the royal garments once again, testifying now to the exalted status of the Lord Jesus, having been the sacrifice for sin. God accepted that sacrifice. Payment was made in full. And the resurrection becomes the great stamp of approval. We heard that in, in the last session, the resurrection is the great stamp of approval on a mission that was well accomplished. And Christ, active and passive obedience, secured our justification. His resurrection assured the fact. His death showed his willingness to save. 
His resurrection shows the power to save. On the day of atonement, it was out from the veil. Aaron came. Regarding Aaron, out from the veil he came. But regarding Christ, up from the grave, he arose. And before I quit, I need to address one common interpretation that is based on some legend without a shred of biblical authority. Invariably, as I have either taught or preached on the Day of Atonement, the question comes, what about that rope that was tied on the leg of the priest to drag him out in case he died behind the veil? It's almost like there was a big collective ear of Israel put up against the walls of the tabernacle, listening for the bells and the pomegranates. And if they didn't hear the bells and the pomegranates, then they knew it was time to start dragging because the high priest must have died. That, of course, I say has no biblical evidence. It is based upon a misapplication of Exodus 28, Exodus 28 indeed says that the high priest is to wear this and if he goes into the holy place with those bells and pomegranates, he dies. He could die there. But this is not the holy place. Remember that those garments, when Aaron went behind the veil, he did not have on that robe with the bells and the pomegranates. He was there in the simplicity and the humility of his linen undergarment. No bells and pomegranates to listen to. No basis for that. I'm confident in, assuring, in, in asserting that there's no way, that there's no way a high priest could have died behind the veil on the Day of Atonement. For a high priest to die on the Day of Atonement would sabotage the prophecy, would jeopardize the message. One year he comes out, Next year we drag him out. Sometimes the gospel works. Sometimes the gospel doesn't work. No. No. The gospel works. I don't care how rascally the high priest may have been. He's a type of Christ here, not by virtue of his own character, but by virtue of his office. And this was a picture sermon that God was giving to the people. Look at this to believe this. The high priest came out on the Day of Atonement as a picture. I say again, there's no maybe. There is no maybe in the gospel. Well, the curtain has fallen on this drama of redemption. The rituals, the rigmaroles of the Day of Atonement are never to be repeated. They are never to be reinstated. But the eternal truths that they proclaimed remain relevant. The truths are clear. The truths are not hard to see. Aaron was a sinner who needed to sacrifice for himself. That Christ is pure and spotless and undefiled. Aaron and his descendants had to repeat those rituals year after year as evidence that the animal blood could not deal with sin, but Christ once and for all secured eternal redemption by his sacrifice. Aaron entered the earthly sanctuary by himself. But Christ entered heaven itself, and his people follow with him. So the Day of Atonement assures us that there is a way to God. The way is it restricted for sure, but there is a way through Jesus, who is the only way, the only truth and the only life. Amen. O oh Lord, how thankful we are for thy word that reveals to us what we need to know. This book is not concealing truth, but it's revealing truth in ways that we understand and can understand. 
So we pray, Lord, that our meditation upon this long past day will remind us and direct us to the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. We commit, Lord, this word and all that which will follow in this conference as we reflect upon the wonder and the grace and the beauty of salvation. Thanks be unto God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.